I'm Rupert Sheldrake. This is the Science Set Free podcast. I'm here with Mark Vernon, and we're going to talk about the evolution of consciousness. So, Mark, what aspects of this interest you most? Yeah, well, I'm glad to talk to you about this because um, I feel I come across this idea that contemporary consciousness, contemporary human consciousness, is evolving in some way. I come across this idea quite a lot, um, and the evolution is... Um, thought to be for the good in some way, sort of expansive or progressive, some kind of rising awareness of what it is to be a human being and to be connected with the cosmos, um, the human potentials growing in some way in the 21st century, through the 20th and into the 21st century. Um, you find this uh, idea um, actually in quite mainstream areas of psychology. I was listening to a discussion headed up by Robert Keegan, a Harvard psychologist who's very well respected for his work on human development. Mm. And he was proposing this idea that because there are more human beings alive today who are in what we would call the second half of life, um, and that it generally speaking is in the second half of life that people um, achieve, as it were, a broader sense of things, then become more integrated, individuated, mm. um, uh, sort of transform the limitations of the earlier parts of their lives, transcend the, those limitations. And um, that maybe there's a mass kind of human experiment going on, um, that's leading to some sort of higher state of consciousness. And he even proposed actually that we in some way need this at this stage in our evolution because we, for the first time, also have the power to destroy ourselves. And unless a kind of higher consciousness emerges, we won't really know how to deal with these terrifying powers that we have. Mm. Now, that's just one particular person. He's not here to defend himself yes. exactly. But broadly, I feel you come across this idea that there's an evolution of consciousness going on. You know, not you don't, you don't have to push that hard to find it if you're interested mm. in spiritual movements and, and mm. so on today. I mean, is this something, is this something you recognise? Well, it is in a way. I, I certainly recognise the the feeling that there's this upsurge of human potential, and it was obviously an ingredient in the New Age movement too. This idea of a expanding human consciousness. But this the whole discussion seems to start from the idea that the default baseline position is secular humanism or atheism or total lack of interest in spirituality. And that may be true of modern Britain for a lot of people, but in the bigger picture of human evolution, it's not the case. I mean, in Britain in the Middle Ages, for example, there were monastic orders all over Britain. There were monks and there were contemplative orders of nuns. There were people who were praying and meditating many times a day. Um, <coughs> in Tibet, until the Chinese invasion, a large part of the population were engaged in spiritual practices probably more advanced forms of meditation than most people in the West were even aware existed um, on a mass scale. Now in Tibet, you know, you've got large-scale Chinese settlements, sort of factories, all the supermarkets, all the paraphernalia of modern life. So is that a progress or is it a decline? Um, and even if you look at, say, the religious revival of the late 18th and 19th centuries, say the Methodist revival in here in England. During that process, they set up small groups of people 
in villages and towns all around England, people who were meeting together, discussing in a quite intimate, personal way what was going on in their lives, praying uh, to God for help and guidance, who tried to transform their lives into kind of spiritually guided lives. And this was a mass movement. It, it, the whole point about the Methodists and similar revival movements was that they were appealing mainly to um, working class and semi-educated people. These were not for sophisticated people. Then in the 19th century was the Oxford movement in the Church of England, the sort of high Anglican movement. Um, the building of churches in working class districts of London with wonderful altars and stained glass and stuff and and full churches and uh, many people uh, drawn towards a spiritual life. So I think if we look at various periods in the past, we can see there have been very high levels of spiritual engagement compared with which the modern world, with its extreme secularism, could be seen as a particularly low ebb. And so against that extremely low baseline, um, the the fact that some people and more people are getting interested in meditation, prayer, uh, a variety of spiritual practices, uh, shows there's a need that's not being met through secular life. And there's, in in a sense, a revival of interest in these things. But... I think we're starting from a far lower baseline than almost all societies in the past. That's very interesting. So it's, you'd say it's more a revival or the possibility of a revival rather than an evolution. Um, because this word evolution is so pregnant with possibility in, you know, modern uh, currency, isn't it? Uh, um, borrowing from obviously biological evolution and this idea that, um, things, well, of course, in biological evolution, generally speaking, things aren't thought to progress. Um, uh, some some biologists, I understand, you'll know this better than me, yes. would argue there is a sort of convergence, at least. Um, but um, in the spiritual circles, the word evolution has this positive, progressive kind of spin. But you think it's better to think of it as a sort of revival, really? Well, no, it isn't really just that, because a revival would be repeating things that have happened before. Uh, Whereas we are actually in a genuinely new situation, so I think it is actually a real evolution. It's just the quantitative aspect I was questioning. You know that in, in the past there was a much higher level of spiritual engagement by many members of society than there is today, at least in Western Europe. Um, but I think what makes it different, evolutionarily speaking now, is that we now know about all the different spiritual traditions. In the 19th century, for most people in in England or America, the only tradition they knew about was the Christian tradition or the Jewish tradition. And they knew there were different varieties of that, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Quaker, etc., and different kinds of Judaism, Orthodox, liberal, Reformed, and so forth. Um, But now we have, in every Western city, we've got Tibetan centers with Tibetan meditation, we've got Zen, we've got Vipassana meditation, different aspects of the Buddhist tradition. There are uh, mosques and there are, there are Islamic teachings of various kinds. There, um, you know, there's various kinds of Christianity still, of course, and there's Hindu temples and shrines and yoga uh, as an extremely common practice. And um, so we start from now from a position where all these things are available to us. And I think the New Age movement was one in which there was a kind of pick-and-mix approach, because it also includes, of course, shamanism, American Indian shamanism, uh, ayahuasca drinking, Peruvian shamanism, 
uh, and so forth. I mean, all these are part of the ingredients now. Um, and in that sense, we're in a completely new position. And it means that any spiritual development can actually draw upon the riches of these different traditions, mm. each of which has its own strengths, I think. Because that raises another question for me, I suppose. Um, you talk about sort of pick and mix or drawing on. And um, I feel that we live in a, a culture where there's a sort of welter of spiritual experimentation going on. Um, and people, you know, as well have to find their own way or find a way um, in communities with others. Um, but I'm also, I'm a member of the Church of England, I think, like yourself. And so I am have a respect for the tradition, too, um, in the sense that um, it gives you access to the wisdom of collected generations, not yes. just your own generation. And so, I mean, I, I say I'm a member of the Church of England, it's true I go to church. I also go to regular Buddhist sitting sessions at the Buddhist Society in Victoria. Mm-hmm. So I'm, a, you know, a product of this plural world as well. Yes. Um, so, but trying to work out how that all knits together can be quite a struggle, I think. So it doesn't just be, you don't just become a spiritual consumer, um, and actually practice just being a consumer of spiritual mm-hmm. goods, but actually do, um, a living a life that is in some sense to a degree, a kind of critique critique of the the, the, the secular consumer um, world out of which you say, you know, this is springing. Yeah, well, I completely agree with you. And I think that when you look at the the general popular movements in the last 30, 40 years in, in spirituality, um, the noticeable feature about them is that the, they've had a complete blind spot about Christianity. Um, in the 1950s and 60s, when people brought up in, at that time, very dominantly atheistic, secular world, took an interest in spirituality. The kind they went for most then was Zen Buddhism, because it was the one that involved the least cosmology, the least conflict with science, uh, the, the most withdrawn from an engagement with the kind of potentially controversial issues, just concentrating on individual consciousness and what you can do about it through practice. Um, in a sense, it's the most stripped-down form of spiritual tradition, and I think that's why it was the first to take hold. Mm. Um, but then, you know, in the 60s, things became more Baroque, with people going to India and, and you know, Hare Krishnaites wandering around the streets of London chanting and that sort of thing, and there's a much wider variety of practices came in. And then the dispersion of Tibetan teachers throughout the West um, meant all these traditions opened up so each of them with their own narrative but the one thing that people simply ignored uh, was christianity and i think that's because the atheist propaganda machine since the late 18th century has has disparaged christianity above all other religions largely because atheism grew up in the west in reaction against it and there was a p- polemical attack on Christianity, which comes in quite early. I'm reading Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire at the moment, and this was written in the mid-18th century. And Gibbon's kind of sneering tone about the Christians in the sense that he's superior as an educated modern man to all these sort of superstitious beliefs, it's it's very similar to modern atheists. So it was established quite early on. And I think this has blinded people to um, our own religious tradition. And like you, I feel that we have to be grounded in our own tradition first and foremost. It's the thing that makes most sense for us. And learning meditation techniques that 
haven't been so well developed in the Christian West, although there are, of course, Christian meditative practices. Um, all these things, for me, make most sense when they're grounded in a, an ongoing tradition linked to our own cultural history. Yeah, I mean, I, I do buy that argument about how atheism is very much about knocking Christianity and not, say, knocking Buddhism. Um, uh, although I also wonder whether part of the problem we have in the West is that our great spiritual powerhouses, the monasteries um, of the medieval world, um, got closed very suddenly, partly for good reason. No doubt they were partly corrupt and so on. But it kind of... Uh, it, 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 it got rid of um, great spiritual resource in our culture that in a way we're still suffering from, I mean, the Christian world at least. Well, the Protestant world. I mean, after all, they didn't get closed down in the Catholic world. And still today there are monasteries functioning in Italy and Spain and, and Austria and so on, uh, which have always functioned. I mean, they've gone through periods of persecution and, and they've had rough times, but and they've declined in number, but they haven't had the same radical break that Protestant countries had. And I suppose you do get uh, widespread Christian movements like, say, Teze, mm. which have uh, developed almost new forms of music that carry a kind of spirituality for today. Yes. Um, do you think, though, that Buddhism uh, has an easier time with modern psychology? Um, Buddhism seems to knit more closely and easily with... Uh, modern psychology because of its interest in the mind and the functioning of the mind whereas with Christianity um, you know there is um, the role of the person of Jesus um, the, the ideas about gods that are involved in Christianity and, and that seems to require some sort of explaining before you actually get to the development of the individual I suppose so but of course in, in, in its native context either in places like Sri Lanka and Thailand or the Tibetan kind of Buddhism in Tibet. Um, it comes in a whole package, a whole complex of you know, other gods and rituals and full moon ceremonies and annual festivals and so forth. So they do have all that, and, and that's sort of largely left behind when, in, in this Western form of Buddhism, which is much more psychologized than it is in, in, in its native habitat. Um, so I think Buddhism does have an easier time with the mind, um, but a harder time with cosmology in a sense, because Buddhists on the whole don't engage with cosmology. You know, I've tried talking to Tibetan lamas, great meditators, you know, about cosmological questions, and you know, they'll talk in, for a few minutes, but then with some slight interest, but then they say, but the only really important thing is to meditate, to work on your, or with your own mind, and. Um, so they always come back to that, and the Buddha emphasized, you know, not wasting time on things you can't answer. And so in that sense, it's very uncosmological. It is psychological, more than other religions. Hinduism's much more cosmological. I mean, they have these vast cosmological visions, and, you know, sacred trees and sacred plants and the sacred sun and, and all sorts of festivals and mantras for particular aspects of nature. I also wonder whether... Um, Buddhism um, is uh, when it's been stripped from that wider context which you talk about the community of practicing monks as it were that's beginning to be recognised as an issue in the West because um, mindfulness practice say can be stated very easily about observing what's happening in your mind 
Um, but it's very, very difficult to do. And I think particularly very difficult to do when you're on your own, because it's so easy to get led into habits of mind within the meditation um, that uh, keep you a bit stuck or trapped when you're doing this on your own without, say, the presence of great teachers and a community of people to have the other practices that went on in, in the Buddhist monastery too. Yes. But I think that's the problem with these uh, imported forms of spirituality in, in the West, that they're individual. And one of the functions of uh, religious tradition is not just the individual, but the community. And I think there's a tendency in Hinduism and Buddhism for the spiritual goal to be somewhat of a vertical takeoff, you know, an individual vertical takeoff. You can do something about your own mind. You can take off from this world of endless reincarnation and karma and samsara and so forth. But uh, that'll all just go on and on and on, although in Tibetan Buddhism enlightened beings come back to help people to try and get everyone to take off by in the end leaving it kind of devoid of sentient beings because they've all uh, been liberated. Um, but a basically a rather gloomy view of the world. Um, so I think the, the Judeo-Christian and Islamic traditions strongly emphasize the community as part of the, uh, the religions about community as well as individual. And, and because it's about community, um, the individual spiritual practice is supported by the, the collective practice, like going to church and meeting people in that sacred place. And last weekend I was staying in Oxfordshire, and there was a, a tiny chapel in a field with an ancient Saxon preaching cross there. And, you know, it was the village had disappeared in the Middle Ages, but the chapel was still there, and they held a service once a month in, in that church. There were only six or seven people there. But it was a wonderful feeling, being singing and giving thanks to God and praying in a place where people have prayed for a thousand years. And the local community, I hadn't met them before, but they were extremely friendly, and I felt connected both with the place and with the community and the tradition. Now, that wouldn't have happened if I just sat at home meditating on my own. Again, I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. I think we, in all religious traditions, there's some things you can do on your own, like praying and meditating, and some things you do with others, like celebration of festivals and regular services and singing together and so on. So maybe what the Christian tradition in the West, anyway, or in the UK, say, has to learn from this interest in meditation and, and Buddhism and so on, is that um, whilst it may be very good at the, the more extrovert side of religion, getting together, having festivals, champ campaigning for social justice, mm. these things which the Church of England, anyway, does do quite well, I think, mm. um, it needs to pay more attention to this inward journey, to the more introverted side of religions, and in some ways that's what, what people are, are crying out for um, these days. Well, I think even that's present, actually, in the Christian tradition. I mean, most dioceses have retreat houses, which are usually rather nice houses in the country where you can go and stay. There are monasteries, Anglican and Roman Catholic, where you can go on retreats. And there's actually an extremely good infrastructure for quiet retreats for people who want them. And the churches themselves, the buildings, are an infrastructure. I mean, I find when I go to New York, for example... Um, there's this busy, frenetic life going on in the street. But if you go into an Anglican or a Catholic church, and there, there are ones all over the city, you enter a kind of oasis of calm. And in many Anglican churches now, as in almost all Catholic ones, you can light a candle and 
pray and you can sit quietly and meditate which I do I mean I use these churches as an oasis of peace and quiet and of course there are thousands of them in England that provide the same opportunity yeah and as you were saying that they're real places aren't they they're not just another space we move so quickly from one space to the next yeah it's very ungrounding yeah um, but to go to an ancient place yes. that has a kind of resonance in the walls um, it's very very powerful so I think it's that they, that combining, in a sense, the Church of England and the Roman Church and other churches too, uh, can fit quite easily with a more contemplative or prayerful lifestyle because the actual, the quiet places are there, the retreat centers are there and so on. It, and there are people teaching Christian meditation techniques. Um, but Vipassana, for example, is a technique just following the breath and that seems quite compatible with almost any religious framework. And there are people who are, are, are creating this bridge. Um, so I think that's, that's an example of spiritual evolution. I think that's an example of practical things actually happening right here in the modern world, here in Britain, in America, in, in Germany, in France, all over the place, um, where the, a spiritual evolution is actually happening. And I think that for those of us who come from Christian culture and Christian countries, um, the integration of these things with the Christian tradition is one of the key features of this evolutionary process. Otherwise, we'll have a series of random spiritual imports forming small sects with their own newsletters and groups and that kind of thing, but not achieving any integration either with the wider community or with the tradition of England or equally important in my view with the sacred places of England. I like that idea because integration seems a more modest and real goal actually rather than some new amazing experience which sometimes mm. the evolution of consciousness is talked about in terms of um, something that makes us more human yes. not uh, helps us as it were to leave the planet. Yes. And I think the um, exploration of consciousness um, through meditation is one way, but another evolutionary development um, that I think is very interesting is the, the growth of these psychedelic churches in Brazil. You know, Santo Daime and Union do Vegetal are basically psychedelic churches where they take ayahuasca as a communion. You've got whole communities there and officiants who are trained in doing this with their own songs and their own kind of music. And they're now part of a major reverse missionary movement um, all over England, there are now Santo Daime churches. Young people mainly who, who go to them uh, are taking part in English versions of these Brazilian rituals, collectively taking um, a psychedelic, powerful psychedelic drug um, as a community spiritual experience. I think it's significant that they've come from Brazil because Brazil's a place where there's an extraordinary degree of uh, integration going on, or syncretism, one might call it, in, in, if one weren't quite, didn't see it quite in such a favourable light. But in Brazil, there's this tremendous syncretism of Native uh, Native American things like ayahuasca, you know, black, um, like Umbanda and Candomblé, you know, these African spiritist religions, more or less integrated with Christianity. There's the Catholic tradition. There's lots of these Pentecostal um, speaking in tongues type churches there. I mean, there's, it's tremendously active in the spiritual 
Uh, it's like a cauldron for, for religion, a new religion. Much more exciting in many ways than anything in Europe. I hadn't realised it was going on to such an extent <coughs> in this country. Yes. In England. Yes. So all these things are actually happening right now. And um, they're spontaneously happening. And and um, I think the ones that will succeed best are the ones that do have the power to integrate and bring people into into, into a kind of tradition and connection with our own um, roots. Otherwise, they'll just remain exotic imports. And all religions and all spiritual traditions, when they enter a new culture, have to be grounded in it. Um, you know, like when Indian Buddhism went to Tibet, um, it had to be grounded in Tibet, and, and Padmasambhava and all these sort of early figures in Tibet are there's lots of stories about how it relates to the gods and goddesses and spirits of the place and, and gets integrated into the countryside, to the land. Um, and so I think this is a part of the way, and, and, and when Christianity went to South America, you know, it got built into you know, sacred places of the Mayans and the Aztecs and that kind of thing. They became sacred Christian places. And when it took over Western Europe, many of the ancient sacred places were Christianized. This is a normal process that happens in the evolution of religion. And I think we're seeing a speeded up version of all these things going on today. I have noticed a growing interest in what's sometimes known as the mystery Jesus or um, Jesus the sage. It's the idea that um, to encounter um, the figure of Jesus or Christ um, is to have a sort of shock um, that opens up an awareness of things for you. And many of the parables and the sayings of Jesus that are remembered um, are kind of... Um, well, not quite cones, but are, are phrases that are um, help help to help you nurture this this new way of this new awareness of the world. Yes, and it does seem to me to to mirror quite well some of the Buddhist ideas that you can have about rather than grasping and possessing the world to to be more uh, freely in the world, to be more liberated in the world. So yes. I guess that would be another way in which that integration is going on. Yes, and I think this emphasis in Christianity of not just what you experience but how you behave is a really important part of it and um, you know it matters how you respond behave to other people and in the lord's prayer you know forgiveness is an important part of it and that's to do with interpersonal relationships yeah um so a big part of it is about relationships um with more self-centered like mindfulness things there's not much about relationships in there um I mean, one would hope that through being more mindful, um, relationships would improve. But, you know, all these things are things that sociologists of religion could actually study and where science could actually feed back and give us more information about how these things, on average, pan out. Um, but I do think it's a very exciting time um, at the moment, and I do think we're actually witnessing a major evolution of spirituality and religion um, going on all around us.